The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Before I read uh, the Old Testament reading in Exodus, I just wanted to give us a little bit of an introduction. You know, when you open your Bible, it usually has an intro into the book, and I wanted to do that as well before we read Exodus 1. The book of Exodus means departure or exit. It's written by Moses and written for the people of God to always remember the promises of God. It's considered the gospel of the Old Testament. The gospel of the Old Testament. So if you think of what you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, think of Exodus as the gospel of the Old Testament and remembering two main promises that God gives to His people. The first promise is to make a people His own, to make a nation and a peoples that are God's. That's one promise. And the second promise is to deliver that people to a promised place, to a home What makes the book of Exodus so rich with the gospel, so rich with Christ, is the way in which God makes a people His own, and the way, the manner in which God takes His people home. It is a way and a manner unlike any man could ever dream up or envision. Exodus' driving purpose is to remind God's people that there was no way we would be a people, and there was no chance we would find our way home without Him. Why do we need Exodus today? It's the gospel of the Old Testament. Why did the Lord lead the leadership of all saints to choose this particular book as our main dish this fall? You may not like what I'm about to say, but the book of Exodus, it's God's agent to shape us to look more like His people and less like the world's offspring. Because this is what you might not like, saints. Let's face it. We don't look that much different from the rest of the world. We really don't. But we're called to be. We're called to be holy. We're called to be set apart. We're called to be distinct. Not just busy or burnt out. And the only way for that to be possible is for God to be the one to change us. The book of Exodus is also God's agent to lead us home, to a home much better than this world. But let's also face facts, friends. We like it too much here to want to think about leaving. Our call to seek first God's kingdom has been downgraded to seek later God's kingdom and seek first pleasure, comfort, distraction, promotion, approval, reputation, religion, independence, and control as our home, as our base camp instead of our eyes onto a better place. And it's our prayer that the Lord would use the book of Exodus to tear off our deadly attachments to what we think can save us and give us this confidence, an unmistakable confidence that God is the only one who can. Exodus is the good news of a gospel, which promises God will be the only one able to make a people holy And God will be the only one able to take this people home. A reading from the book of Exodus chapter 1. And just unique, I know, but as we begin this series in Exodus, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, 
Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son... You shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. God, we thank you for your word. You may be seated. Dad. Dad, do you pinky promise? I know with certainty that I've broken trust with my kids when I hear them ask the question, Dad, do you pinky promise? Because what would lead a kid to ask that question if a promise hadn't already been broken sometime before, right? When we say, son, I'll be right there, and it's an hour later. When we say, I'll I'll call you right back, and it's three days later. When we say, let's get together soon, and it's four summers later. When we say, I'll make my bed, or I'll put the dishes away, or I'll finish my homework. And the next morning, we wake up and nothing's different. And we say to the Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Saints, we're not reliable. Look at us. We break commitments. We bend promises. And we're not alone. We're not, right? Look at our leaders. As we enter into another headache season of political jockeying and ads, right? We've grown deaf to the promises, right? No new this. 
No raising of this or a complete overhaul of that. We don't believe them. We don't believe the promises. We take all of these broken promises made to us and made by us humans, and we believe this. There's absolutely no one to be trusted, not even God. We put all our cynicism and distrust not only onto each other, but onto Him as well. You promise you would preserve your people. Why is there so much death and destruction in this world? You promise you will protect your people. Why have you put us in such a dangerous, trafficked, and treacherous world? You promise you'll provide for your people. So why are there still starving, struggling, and suffering out there? (laughs) The book of Exodus, and specifically Exodus 1 this morning, is written actually to encourage you to detach your distrust off of God. And instead, remember, no, never forget this, friends. The Lord keeps every promise He makes to His people. The Lord keeps every promise He makes to His people. Three promises this chapter centers upon that I want to highlight this morning. The first promise is to preserve a people. The second promise is to protect a people. And the third promise is to provide for a people. First, Never forget God's promise to preserve His people. The book of Exodus, if you read it in the Hebrew language, actually begins with the word and. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. Why is that important? Well, that's a clue for us that this is a continuation of the book before, the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is all about the beginning of God's promises, beginning with Adam and Eve, A couple called to be fruitful and multiply. But what happened with them? They sinned. And their first son actually killed their second. But we hear God's promise given to Adam and Eve. In their sin, He promised, no, your seed is going to continue. This family is going to continue. And then came Noah. After judgment and rain fell on humanity and people died under the water, Noah was preserved and then called after he got out of the boat to be fruitful and multiply. God's promise to preserve his people. And then Abram, an old childless man whose name ironically meant father, who didn't have any kids, was called to follow God in faith in order that God, in His promise, would make Abram's offspring so many, they would be like the number of stars in the sky. Abraham, a fatherless man, became, or Abram, a fatherless man, became Abraham, whose name would mean father of the multitudes, and whose family would be a blessing to the entire world. That's where we're picking up. Throughout Genesis, you see the hand of God promising, I'm going to preserve this people. I'm going to keep them alive. When all they want to do is kill each other, I'm going to keep them alive. Abraham would father Isaac, and Isaac would father Jacob, who we read about in Exodus, a scoundrel of a man. And Jacob would have 12 sons, 11 of whom would want to murder their brother Joseph. But instead, they sold him off into slavery because they were jealous of him. And Joseph would once again be used by God to preserve not only God's family, these 12 tribes of Israel, but actually preserve the entire ancient world from starving to death. 
And in the beginning paragraph of Exodus, we watch the promise of God's preservation come true as the Lord grows this nation in Egypt. You see the words in those first several verses? Words like fruitful, increase, multiply, growing, filling. And you have to see God's hand of promise behind all of those words. He saved Jacob's undeserving family through Joseph in Egypt. And now that family is growing like wildfire. God is making good on his promise to Abraham to make a nation that would bless the world. The key thing to remember about God's people, though, friends, is that these people, Israel, are not exceptional people. These 70 people starting the book of Exodus are not dressed in royal garments. They're not an upstanding people. Their last name, Israel, means wrestles with God. These are attempted murderers. They are they're swindlers. These are cheats. And yet God promises to bless and preserve them. I think it's interesting that it's 70 that it starts with. Because God's going to multiply that 70 times 7 to show how forgiving a God he is. To bring about this number of people who are wretched and say, I love them. That's the kind of God I am. That's to God's glory. A God who keeps his promises to preserve his people in spite of who they are. A friend of mine was managing his company several years ago. And he was stressed out to no end. He was micromanaging every single employee. He was angry and stressing out about bottom lines and profitability and success. And then, in an instant, broke his back and had to spend six months on the couch, unable to move. Guess what happened during those six months, unable to move? What happened to his business? It doubled in size and profitability. Why? Because he did something. He said, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't even pick up a phone. No, because God did something. He said it was unmistakable that the Lord was preserving him, not because of his faithfulness, but because of God's faithfulness to him. Friends, as you read the first seven verses of Exodus, I guess I want to ask you, what are your opening words of Exodus? What do you look back on in terms of your own track record and sin track record of life and say, how in the world have you been so kind, Lord, to preserve me? How has the Lord Jesus been a Joseph to you? You sold him off. You wrote him off. But he still worked to keep you alive even during your darkest times and your most sinful times. He still preserved you. Friends, remember his promise to preserve you. Preservation of you is not on your shoulders or your watch. It's on Christ. Let him take care of you. Let him feed you. Let him clothe you. Let him lead you. What gifts can you be grateful that you have that are not because you made them happen, but because Christ made them yours and gave them to you because he loves you? He preserves us not only to bless us, but also to bless others. Remember that as well. The blessings that you're thinking of are not just for you. 
mom who's going through a tough time as a mom, guess what? That tough time is actually probably going to be used by God to minister to another mom going through a tough time. Someone who's been abused by a bully, maybe your abuse is actually going to be served to bless someone else who's been abused. If you're a beggar who's known what it's like to have nothing and God provide, you become a beggar who says to other people, hey, here's where you can find some bread. Blessed and preserved so that you can bless and preserve. Secondly, God not only promises to preserve his people, he promises to protect his people. Look at verses 8 to 14. And as you look at verses 8 to 14, it seems strange. You might be thinking in this sermon, Chad, you just used the word God promises to protect his people when throughout these verses, God's people are being pummeled by a dictator. This isn't protection. As we walk through it, we'll we'll hopefully see protection. What's, What's the problem we've got going on with this new king? You see it at the last few words of verse 8. He did not know Joseph. What's that code for? This new king had forgotten God's preservation, had forgotten God's protection. Egypt, the nation of which this king was responsible for, they were the recipient of Joseph's plan from God to store crops as an upcoming famine was coming. God's person, Joseph, was used by God not only to keep God's people alive, but also to keep the nation of Egypt alive. But this new king forgot that. This new king believed protection of Egypt and even protection of his own power was on him and not on God. That's where his paranoia about the people of Israel comes from. Oh, they're getting big. Oh, they're getting big. They have the potential to take away my power and my position. This new king is vulnerable, and he has to maintain his own house built on the sand of himself. So what does he do? It's what every vulnerable, insecure leader does from Herod to Hitler. He enslaves the foreign threat. He makes them less than human. He uses intimidation, taskmasters, violence, threat to demotivate and to scare them and to paralyze them. And then he tells his own people, these Hebrews are dangerous to the well-being of our country. Friends, it sounds a lot like political tactics used today with immigration and with foreign policy, doesn't it? These people are threatening to our nation. This new king is rejecting God's promises to make a people great and make a home for them. This new king wants to make this people small and make a prison for them, and he'll use cruel measures to make it happen. It's the playbook of the power-hungry when they perceive God as a threat. But what happens, the more the new king pushes, pushes them down, what happens? The more they multiply. God continues to grow a nation as the new king attempts to stop this nation from growing. So the question you might ask through this, through this slavery that this new king is putting upon the people, is how in the world is this God's protection of people? How does awful circumstances like slavery show a good God's protection? Doesn't make sense. He's a promise to give a people a new home, friends. He's promised that. So how likely do you think these people would be to move if they were comfortable where they were? God is using the sinful, sick, insecure leader to protect his people from becoming Egyptian. 
from becoming American. He's protecting them from assimilating to a godless society. He's protecting them from becoming unrecognizable and distinct from the world around them. We can read these verses and initially think, oh God, you're to blame for the slavery of these people. He's not. Sin is to blame. Power-hungry people that's in our pride is to blame. But even in the midst of this slavery and suffering, God is working to make a people so discontent with status quo, with their present world being their forever world, that he's giving them this longing for a deliverer to get out of here. He's protecting his people from themselves. How many of us want more money in our bank? Why? Why do you want that? Because you probably want to stay here longer. How many of us want a bigger house or a second home? Why? How many of us would want to put funds in our bank to travel the world? Why? Because we just want to stay here. But how many of us see the limits God has put on our pocketbook as a protection of a loving God that this world, I don't want you to love more than the kingdom that is to come. God has a promise to give his people Israel, to give his people the church a place And he's keeping his promise to them by stirring in them a desire for something so much better than slavery in Egypt. I remember a friend of mine whose wise words have impacted me many times in my life. But I was sharing with him that I was having a conflict with a boss. A boss whom I had gotten along with for a long time. We'd done really well for several years working together. And there was this conflict that was going on that we couldn't seem to resolve. And it wasn't even about sin. It was just like, we can't see eye to eye. We're not, it's not going well. And I remember sharing with my, my friend. I said, I, I don't know what's happening. What's in my heart? What do I need to repent of? What's going on? He's, he's like, I'm just so excited for you. I'm so excited for you. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Why are you excited for me? He said, God's moving you somewhere. He's moving you. You're not going to be staying there. That's, I think, what's going on with this not seeing eye to eye. Because you have a different vision for something else that might be coming. What? But God used that discomfort to move me. But we, as one songwriter put it, one of my favorite songwriters, we paint pictures of Egypt, don't we? This place of slavery being this paradise sort of place but we leave out what it lacks. She says, the future seems so hard, we just want to go back. We do this with our patterns of sin sometimes, don't we? We forget sin once enslaved us. So we just entertain the thought, oh, just one drink, just one website, just one little lie. But a promise-keeping God, even when we do that, makes remaining a slave of sin so hard for his people, so uncomfortable for his people, so much work, so much oppression, that all we want is just to be relieved of it. And applying this to our lives, just two lines of questions. The first is this, how are you the king? Have you forgotten what Jesus, Joseph, has done for you? How are you believing that maintaining your current position in life is all up to you? Who do you belittle in order to feel better? Who do you afflict with heavy burdens because you want to keep them from stepping into your seat of power? Who's a threat to you and why are they a threat? 
Remember God's promise to protect you no matter where you find yourself, whether on the high seat of power or the lowest pit. Second question I want to ask you is this. How do you respond to suffering? Do you see it as a curse or do you see it as a blessing? Are you looking under the chains? Are you looking beyond the soul-crushing labor of suffering to see a God who's inviting you to a place where you want to experience his relief, where you desire his relief. Let him show you, even in your suffering, that where you are is not his final destination for you. The cross wasn't Jesus' final destination, nor is your cross your final destination. Let suffering lead you, as Romans 5 says, to hope. And as you never forget God's promise to preserve his promise to protect. Remember lastly, his promise to provide. Provide for his daughter Israel. Provide for his daughter the church, a son. Look with me at final verses 15 to 22 of this opening chapter. The new king, he sees his plan to power over God's people having the reverse effect. Have you ever had creeping Charlie in your lawn? It's like creeping Charlie. The more he attempted to eradicate Israel, the more they spread and grew. And so he leads an abortion campaign to take out a future army of Hebrew men. He asks two Hebrew midwives who are probably more like charge nurses over all of the people's midwives because there aren't just two midwives for all of these thousands of people. They're probably the ones in charge of midwives. He leads them to take out the baby. He orders them. He says this, as soon as you see that baby's gender revealed on that birth stool, as soon as you see it's a boy, terminate. Wrap the cord around the neck of the boy. Strangle him before the mother even hears his cry. That's what he's asking them to do. And what do the charge nurses do? Nothing. They refuse. They choose a fear of God, who's the giver of life, over the new king's response to disobedience. They do nothing. And as the king calls them to question in his chambers, they plead this. Oh, those Hebrew women, they are tougher cookies than Egyptians. They get those babies out before we can even get there. It's a really humorous response. Some commentators, including our beloved John Calvin, go off on these women for their dishonesty and their lies. But here, I believe, is a rare opportunity when God is actually rewarding false witness because it's not false witness against a neighbor. It's false witness for a neighbor, for the preservation of their life. They are pro-life because they're pro the giver of life. And you may not agree that that lying was okay by God, but, but one rule of Scripture interpretation is if you're not sure, look at the outcome. What happens to those women? The Lord provides for them the blessing of a family. He gives them kids too. As they saved kids, they get kids. Something these Hebrew midwives may not have been able to have at this point. That might be why they're midwives. These women didn't know what would happen to them in their civil disobedience. But what they did know was a God who provides. A God who would make a way where there doesn't seem to be a way. 
Their pledge of allegiance to God over Pharaoh was really risky. It was life-threatening, but it made a way for the Lord to provide to a people a boy named Moses. A boy who would grow into a leader and a savior and a deliverer of God's people, Israel. And this preservation of life from these midwives, from these beautiful women, would also make a way for the Lord to provide for his people that seed in Genesis that he promised, that seed that would save a sinful people. Jesus was spared a similar death blow by Herod as Mary and Joseph defied Herod as they were civilly disobedient and made their way to Egypt so that he would not be killed. And Jesus would lead the way toward a promised land, toward a kingdom not of this world, by preserving his people. I just want to encourage you, never forget Jesus' preservation of you, how the Lord provided a son to his daughter Israel, to his daughter church, by preserving you so that he would be sacrificed. Never forget Jesus' protection of you by the burden he carried for you on the cross. Never forget Jesus' provision for you by being thrown into the floodwaters of judgment, thrown into the Nile of God's wrath so that you, daughter, church, could live. Saints, I want to look forward to this fall in Exodus that we can remember God's promises have all come true in Christ as we never forget his preserving this less than glorious people with the food of a Joseph Jesus, as we never forget Christ's protection of us through the suffering of Jesus on a cross that leads us to a better home than we have now, as we never forget his provision to give us a midwife Jesus who not only risked but laid down his life so that we, the children of God, could live. Never forget, friends, God's promises are fully kept in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we look forward to the book of Exodus and what your word has for us. We come knowing we need preserving. We need protecting. We need your provision. Lord, we have things that we have leaned upon and depended upon to provide, protect, and and, uh, lead us. Father, some of these things have become so big in our heart that they've led us astray and led us away from you. So, Father, we pray that you would deliver us, make us into a distinct and holy people that look less and less and less like the world. And remind us, Father, that you are leading us, this holy people, to a place that looks far better, better, better than this world. Do your work in us, we pray, this fall. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.